0: Okay, a couple quick announcements, or actually just one big announcement. Um, We are in the second week of dinner parties. We've had two new dinner parties that have launched because we've had so many that filled up. We have one in Hill East, so if you live in kind of the Capitol Hill area, H Street, um, Kingman Park, Um, Hill East. uh, We have a a new one that just started this week there. And then we have one that's starting in Cleveland Park. So those of you who are in Northwest D.C. And then we're still looking for another one in the Columbia Heights neighborhood because um, the the one here uh, in Columbia Heights uh, capped itself at 18 people and filled up the first week. So... um A few of you live in this neighborhood, which is a good thing. Um, Okay, Uh, we are in um, week six of a eight-part series called Blank Slate, where basically the premise is, um, what would happen if you were to restart your faith from scratch, or to start your faith for the first time? Um, Most of you um, were, at some point in your life, in childhood or early teenage years, handed a faith framework. Your priest or your pastor or your rabbi um, basically said, here, believe this, and you're like, sounds good to me. And then what happens is, as you get older, there is often a gap that begins to um, form between what you were taught about faith and what you experienced as an adult. And, and so we're really um, trying to figure out what it would look like uh, if we were to go back to the beginning. And if we were to go back to the beginning, where would we start? And what are the things that I think you need to wrestle with? And so we've been working through a number of issues that I think you need to wrestle with. Um, and we're coming in for a landing in the next couple of weeks. And if you missed any of the sermons, I'd encourage you to go online, catch up. Um, we just, I was told this week that we're on Spotify because a couple of you said you only listen to podcasts on Spotify Um, so we're on Spotify now so um, you can listen there Um, but I'd encourage you to catch up because each week kind of builds on the previous week and so there are things that I will skim over that might not make sense if you missed um, previous weeks. Um, Today what I want to talk about is is something that all of us have done at some point in our lives and that's bargain with God. All of us have bargained with God God, if you, if, if, I will do X if you will do Y. For some of us, it's something silly, right? uh, For me, it was in school. I, I was not the most studious of students. And so I would arrive in the classroom before a big test, not stud, hadn't studied, and then I would tell God, if you help me pass this test, I will be like a missionary somewhere overseas. And and then you've you've done the same thing. You're laughing because some of you have done the exact same thing. Some of it's bigger things, right? If you heal my friend or if you help me get this big job. Some of you have made like financial commitments. God, if you help me get this job, like you're doing the numbers and you're like, wow, that's double what I earn now. God, if you help me get this job, I will actually start tithing. I will give you 10%. Some of you are like, heck, if I get that job, I'll give you 25%. And then you get the big job. And then you're like, wow, I must be really good. I'm lucky. Um, I mean, some of you, like, yeah, you're like, well, boy, I must have studied more than I thought I studied. And and you completely forget the the agreement that you made with God. Now, that idea of bargaining with God is is not something unique to Christianity. All religions do it. Heck, even atheists um, negotiate with God. There starts off something like, to whom it may concern, right? Great being in the sky, if you exist, I will do X. Um, all of us, no matter our background, have done something like that at some point in our lives. And, and negotiating with God really is, uh, there's, there's two premises that it's based upon if you are doing something like that. The first is actually a fairly incredible faith claim, and, and that is that there is a God, and that, that God knows that you exist, Right? That's kind of the first thing that's based upon, is that if you're negotiating with somebody, not only does that thing, that being exists, but also the thing that you're negotiating with actually knows that you exist. And then the second premise is that this thing, this being that, that you're acknowledging might possibly exist, you're also, you also believe that you have something that this being wants, that there's something that you have that they want, right? So, like, God, I will give you my life. I will serve you. And, and, and like, the, the being in the sky is like, oh, boy, I've been waiting. Okay, now that you have agreed to give me this thing, I now will do whatever it is that you have requested that I do. Christianity, you, you need to know, doesn't work that way. I, it's just human nature. We want to negotiate with God, but Christianity doesn't work that way. And what you need to know about Christianity is this, is that God doesn't want anything from you God doesn't need anything from you but instead God wants something for you and that's so important to understand that's so important to come to grips with that God doesn't want or need anything from you but instead that God wants something for you he wants you to have life he wants you to have life Abundantly, And when you open the pages of the New Testament and when you read through the teachings of Jesus, you see this over and over and over. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. I have not come because I need something. I've come because I want something for you. Now the other word, the other concept, and this is really where I want to focus my time today that's key to the Christian faith, um, is the idea of grace. Um, We sing songs about it. Um, I was actually at a Florence and the Machine concert the other night, and the opener, um, who was not religious in any way, but I think had a uh, grew up Southern Baptist, um, uh, her mic stopped working, and um, she like her her wireless wouldn't work, and so she couldn't keep performing, and so then she just a cappella. Leads the entire anthem, which is like 6,000 people waiting for Florence and the Machine, leads them in amazing grace. And it was this really moving moment, and then she went back to doing other things that were not religious. And um, this idea of grace is something that we've all heard, but it's not something we all understand. The definition I grew up with, the definition that actually my mom would quote all the time, she had plastered it all over our house, and it's still one of the best definitions I've heard of grace is um, grace is is unmerited favor. It, it, It is favor, it is gift that you receive and that you do not deserve, right? You did nothing to deserve this gift. You did nothing to receive this gift. There is nothing you did to be a recipient of it. And, and it's unconditional. And it's not about the receiver. It's about the giver. Um, the Christian faith is not based on contract or negotiation. It's based on gift. And I think sometimes we think that, like, there's a contract with God or there's some sort of negotiation we can do with God. But the Christian faith is negotiation and gift. It is about the giver, not the receiver. And some of us act, if it's the other way around, like we are so good that we deserve to be okay with God. I was thinking about this with the idea of receiving a gift. When when you receive a gift, it's all about the giver, not about the receiver. And imagine like someone gives you a great gift. You're like, oh, thank you so much. I deserve this. I really appreciate it. Had you not given me this great gift, I would have been pretty upset because I am worthy of it. But that's how some of us, in some ways, approach Christian faith. We have been indoctrinated, um, often through the misuse of Scripture, to believe that somehow, that if we behave well enough, that then we are worthy of the grace of God, the love of God. I want to look at a a passage from the Apostle Paul. Um, He writes it to the the, the city of Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was a port city at the time um, that Paul wrote this letter. This is not important, it's just the way my brain works, and I figured I'd tell you, but Ephesus was a port city. If you were to go today, it is no longer a port city because the water has receded so much, and all I could think about is the people who bought like waterfront property, and now they, they don't have waterfront property anymore. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the sermon, but that is how my brain works. Like I get I get caught up in these little tiny idiosyncrasies and then I forget what I am doing. Which is interesting because actually we're going to see in this passage Paul does the same thing. When you read the apostle Paul, he's hard to read sometimes because he gets going, he gets excited, and he just starts rambling. And then what he ends up doing is he then catches that he's rambling and he'll come back and he'll re- he summarizes what he's been talking about. He does that in this passage that we're going to look at today. He wrote the passage in about 65 AD, um, which is about 30 years after Jesus dies, um, and which is, which is important. The reason I'm telling you this, the reason I'm telling you about Ephesus besides waterfront property values is that um, it's written to real people in a real place. Um, And it's written about 30 years after Jesus dies, which means that it's written while the people who knew Jesus and who walked with Jesus are still alive. Peter, or I mean, Paul knows Peter and John. He knows the people who knew Jesus. He learned about Jesus from the people who sat around the campfire with Jesus. And I think that's so important to understand, so important to grasp as we think about becoming a follower of Jesus, as we think about the Christian faith. So he writes... Um, He he starts off this letter um, to the the Ephesians in a slightly negative way. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. There was no life. There was a deadness inside of you. You were separated from life. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers and the kingdoms of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And then he does this, then Paul does something interesting, and I'm actually gonna, I, I typically read passages from the NIV, but I'm gonna switch to the NASB um, because the NASB um, is the most literal of all translations. If you've ever read the NASB, you, you, you find scripture to be quite unreadable because it is so literal that they aren't able to like make it read well, and but the reason I want to read from this is because we lose something in the English translation. Because in Greek, you 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 could not italicize or bold something, and so if you wanted to emphasize it, you placed it at the beginning of the sentence. And so the the NIV doesn't do this, but but the, and, and the NASB does. It's, it's verse four, but God. So Paul puts this at the beginning, because this is what he emphasizes, right? So you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, but God being rich in mercy. The the emphasis, the thing you, you need to focus on, the thing that gets underlined is it's about God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, because of his great love which he loved me, made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. So before you even took a step towards God, God is taking a step towards you. And then at some point, I think Paul realizes in this passage that he's he's been maybe rambling a bit too long and maybe losing the thread that he's trying to say. And so he comes back around and he's like, you know what, let me just summarize it for you. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. You need to understand that it's, it's, for, but it's, it's by grace you've been saved. It is, it is a complete gift. And the, this gift comes through faith through trust. It's the same starting point that, that Abraham has underneath the desert stars. It's the same starting point that, that Israel has the night before their freedom when they celebrate the Passover meal. It's the same starting point that we found in, in the gospel and when, when we looked at John the Baptist. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not from yourselves and this is not from yourselves. You did nothing. It's a gift of God. Not by works, so no one can boast. And this is maybe one of the hardest things for us to wrap our heads around. At least it's one of the hardest things for me to wrap our heads around. Is is this idea that that, that salvation, that freedom is a complete and utter gift. And there is nothing we do to make ourselves worthy of this gift. Because if there was, Actually, I'm going to talk about this in a moment, but the people who believe that there is something they have done, they are good enough to be worthy of God, they're self-righteous jerks. You know people like this. They're intolerable to be around because they think that somehow they are good enough people, but actually their self-righteousness makes them unrighteous. It's nothing you can do. This is the, Salvation is offered as a free gift. Now, not, that's the theology part. Now, But I want to look next at the practical part. Because we've been raised to believe, at least depending on which tradition you were raised in. But honestly, if you're raised as an American, honestly, if you're raised in a Western context, you, you have learned something along the lines or been indoctrinated in a world where if you will do something, I will do something in return. And if you won't do it, I won't do it. So we kind of view God in the same way. Like, God is like, okay, here's the deal. You do this, and then I'll do this. You do this, and I'll do this. But if you won't, I won't. But were we clear on that? Like, you need to do something. And, and what Paul is saying is, no, 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 before we could even do anything on our own, anything before we could take a step towards God, God came towards us, and it's nothing that we can do because if it was something we could do, then we would boast about what we have done, but this salvation, this liberation, this freedom is gift. And so the question that I, I need you to consider as you're thinking, as you're exploring starting your faith is, what standard will you use to decide how you're doing with God? Because that's the question I've really been wrestling with this past couple weeks is, how do you know how you're doing with God? And some of you don't worry about this at all. Like you, you and God are, are great. You are really confident. But others of you, possibly because of the way you've been raised, um, maybe a book you read, maybe something your grandma said, maybe something someone said to you in, in kids' church. I was talking to someone this week about how Uh, things they learned in children's churches, like, haunted them for good and for bad, has haunted them their entire lives. Little, like, one-off comments. So the question is, how, like, how are you doing with God? Because some of you don't worry about this, but others of you, if you were honest with yourself, are pretty sure that God is pissed at you most of the time, even if you've done nothing like that you even, like, you don't even know anything in particular that you've done that makes God upset at you, but there's, con- there's this constant anxiety about how God feels about you. And, and, and if you're deciding how it is that God feels about you, there's two standards or markers you can decide or base it upon. One is behavior, so the way you behave, right? you do good, God's happy, you do bad, God's mad, And the other is grace. Now, if you were one of the people who says, it's behavior, or honestly, nobody would go as far as to say it's all behavior. Most of you would say it's a hybrid of the two, grace and behavior. But if it's partially behavior, then the question becomes, what's the behavioral standard? This is is what the Pharisees wrestled with. What is, what is it we have to do to be good with God? And so they came up with about 630 different rules, things that they need to do. As long as they follow those things, God would be happy with them. So what is that behavioral standard? Is it the Ten Commandments? Well, that really wasn't ever the point of the Ten Commandments, and that's really not that inclusive of a list. Well, maybe it's Scripture as a whole. I was thinking maybe um, if you're like, trying to use the Scripture as your behavioral standard, there's so many different things in Scripture that you need to, to follow that maybe you just like start writing them all over your wall with like magic marker. And then people start thinking like you're the beautiful mind guy, right? You just got these, these all these do not, do not lie, forgive people. You know, have got all these behavioral standards. And that's that's impossible to figure all that out. Maybe, maybe the behavioral standard is Jesus. Or maybe just not even Jesus or in totality. But maybe just Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. But go home this afternoon, if you want to be depressed, go home this afternoon and read the Sermon on the Mount and then look at your own life and then see how that all meshes up. And the guess, my guess is that there's a pretty big gap between the the life that Jesus calls for in the Sermon on the Mount and the life that you live even on your best day. Because what Jesus is doing is he is painting a picture of the world that is possible, the world that we are moving towards, the world that when all things come together, it is who we are being transformed into. But if we were to be honest with us ourselves, most of, our, most of us get an F on the grading if we are comparing ourselves to the Sermon on the Mount. If you think it's behavior... I think sometimes we lower the Jesus standard in order that we match it. But if we take Jesus seriously and who we are called to be as reflectors of the image and love of God, most of us fall short. This is why we we confess, why before we head into communion, we confess our sins um, to to God, both what we have done and what we have left undone. None of us match up to the image of Jesus. And if you do believe it's on behavior, where'd you get that idea from? Chances are you got it from church or a pastor or a book. It's not from Scripture. Not if you read Scripture in its entirety. Clearly, you can find a verse. You can find a verse to support any crazy idea that you might have. But what standard will you use to determine where you are with God? And this is as cute as I'm going to get, but I think you need to hear this. Religion is about do. Religion is about the do. But the Christian faith is about done. Religion is about this constant striving to try to be good enough in whatever system that you are within. The behaviors that you'll do. The Christian faith says something has already been done on your behalf and all you have to do is through faith, through trust, is accept the gift that has been offered to you. Years ago, in the ancient world, people were constantly anxious about how they were doing with God. When it wouldn't rain, it did not rain because of something to do in the atmosphere. It, it didn't rain because of something to do with the atmosphere. It didn't rain because the gods were unhappy. And so what would you do? You'd kill an animal. And if it still didn't rain, you'd kill more animals. And lambs and goats and all kinds of animals lost their lives because all these people, not just Israel, like the entire ancient world thought that God was perpetually unhappy with them. And they then need to do something to appease the gods. Now, we look back and think how primitive and silly those people are. but You're the same way if you're honest with yourself. Like, think about those moments. Think about those moments when life is not going how you expected, when crisis, when crisis strikes, things fall apart. It, it, it is Our primitive brain often takes over, and in those moments, we begin to think, I wonder if I've done something to make God unhappy with me. Why is this happening to me right now? I wonder what God thinks of me right now. What did I do? You know you do this, right? In the moment when everything seems to be falling apart, Your rational brain often knows that's ridiculous, but your primitive brain thinks, I must have done something to make God upset with me. What do I have to do in order to get God to be happy with me, interested in me, to get God to give me favor, to cause it to rain? I actually didn't know it was going to rain this morning, and um, someone came to me after church and was like, I think someone sacrificed a goat during service. (laughs) My first thought was like, what? Oh, it took me a second. Good joke, Ennis. Are you in here? Anyway, <laughs> you can congratulate Ennis on his joke. Um, uh, I just should keep going. I get distracted. But the question is that some of you are asking is, so it's, we are not okay with God based on behavior, but behavior does seem to be a big part of what Jesus talks about. He calls us to be a particular type of people. And my answer is this, is that you're right. Like, that is a big part of what Jesus talks about. He says there is a new and a better way of living. In fact, the way you are living, the wages of sin, the wages of your current life is death. Violence begets violence. Revenge brings about revenge. Anger and hatred towards another person brings about anger and hatred. If you do not live into a new way of living, you you are living into a life of sadness and sorrow and destruction that ultimately ends in the death of relationship. Like that's where you're headed. But in the Christian faith, we do not behave in a particular way out of obligation or in a way, rather in a sense, we don't behave in a particular way to make God happy with us or to get God's favor. We behave in a particular way out of gratitude. It's out of gratitude, out of the gratitude for what has been done for us. We live in response to the gift that has been given to us. Do you know why Christians forgive? Because we've been forgiven. Do you know why we give? Because God first gave to us. Do you know why we serve? Because we have been served. Do you know why we're kind to each other? Because God has first been kind to us. Do you know why we submit and surrender to one another and put other people first? Because on the cross, God put us first. We behave in response to the gift that has been given, not as a precursor to receiving the gift. All the the to-dos and the Christian faith are response to what God has already done. If you don't believe me, read the New Testament. As followers of Jesus, we've been called to live a life not in order to gain acceptance, but it's because we have been given a gift. We have been invited to live a different way by a different story, by a different narrative, by a different set of values. It's about gift. So let me sum it up, because I've been going off a little bit from where we started. It's because of his great love It's because of God's great love. It's because he loved us. It's because he loved you. It is a gift of grace from God. Your salvation, your freedom, your invitation to a new world, to a better way of living, to liberation is a gift. You have been saved through faith, by grace, through faith. It is a gift of God. The Old Testament points in this direction, but it becomes fully known and fully realized in the life and the teachings of Jesus. We don't earn it. We don't trade for God's favor. We don't bargain for God's favor. We live in response to what has already been done. And you need to know that if, if you don't come to grips with this, as you think about beginning your faith or restarting your faith, and you think that there is something you can do to make God happy with you, to make yourself in right relationship with God, you will find your entire life lived on a hamster wheel. And you will never, ever find peace and find freedom. Because you will, there will always be something more you should be doing. But when you embrace the grace of God, you will find peace. And when you embrace and when you wrestle this question to the ground, you no longer have to wonder how you and God are doing. God wants the best for you. He loves you immensely and is is offered this gift. All you have to do is accept the gift through trust. And then out of that, you begin living in a new and a better way. But you don't have to go around wondering all the time, is God unhappy with me? Is God happy with me? How am I doing it? Oh, I wasn't as loving as I should have been this week. I wonder if God's unhappy with me. When life falls apart and things aren't going well, your mind does not have to go to, oh, I wonder what I did this time. That's why the song calls it amazing grace. It is amazing. It is incomprehensible. The other option, I mentioned, touched on this before, the only other option is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness appears holy at first. You know this. The self-righteous people you know, the first time you meet them, you think, oh, they're so much better than me. If only I could be as good as that person. They are so kind, they're so loving, they're so holy in themselves. So they normally tell you how kind and how loving and how holy they are. But they seem it, right? They help everyone. They do They never get upset that's the way the Pharisees were. But Jesus is like, on the outside, you all look like you're great. But then you just scratch the surface and find that there is nothing but darkness underneath. And the reason is this. I think it's because, have you ever known somebody who operates in their entire life out of obligation? They They just follow the rules. They just do what they're supposed to do. Everything they're doing is simply because it's the right thing to do. It's what it, it, it's it's, always, it's out, everything is out of obligation. They're just trying to make sure they check off all the boxes. But often when you live your life in response to obligation, there is a deadness inside. There's not a joy and a lightness and a freedom. You know this because some of you have tried to do this, and you find that what should be life-giving is deadening. But instead, followers of Jesus, we are responding from the gift that we have been given. We follow and walk in a new way because we believe that God has given us the gift of living differently. The person we were is not the person we have to be. It is a gift, and we are responding to that gift. It is not out of obligation, and when we fail, it's not that God is going to strike us dead, but instead it's that God wants to bring us back to the path so that we can live fully into the people that he has created us to be. But if you want to know what life and obligation lived under obligation looks like, look at the Pharisees. They're the best people. They're the most self-righteous people you could ever meet. And they are the people who seem, in the story of Jesus, seem to most miss the gospel. They completely misunderstand what Jesus is about, and they're miserable. They are... If you want another example of this, look at the story of the the prodigal son, right? There's the the, the son who is squandered and done everything wrong. And who is unhappy in the story and bitter at the end of the day? It is the self-righteous older brother who says, I have done everything right. How dare you extend grace to the other person, right? He's the one who's unhappy. The prodigal, though, he is responding out of gratitude and out of the gift that he has been given and there is just this incredible exuberant joy because he was once lost and now he is found that's how we should respond we do not behave well because we are obligated we behave in a particular way and live in a particular way out of the gift that we have been given we have been we are we've been we are blessed to be able to live Our lives by a different set of values. Because you know this, your friends who are living, your friends who believe that might makes right and that the person with the most toys at the end of the day wins, they're miserable. The person who believes that it's all about me often ends up alone. But we've been invited into a community that says, no, we are to be ambitious not for ourselves, but we are to be ambitious for other people. We seek good for all we forgive others because we have been forgiven we've been offered unconditional grace now the truth is during the sermon some of you many of you maybe all of you have had this but what about but what about i hear what you're saying but but what about you have your but what about and i don't want to hear it what i want you to do what i want you to do is in your dinner party this week is i want you to talk about what is your what but what about What's that thing as I was talking about? But what about, but what about, but what about? Because we almost every one of us has that. At some point during the sermon, you had your, your but what about. I want you to talk about that this week during your dinner party. If you aren't in a dinner party yet, you can find one on thetablechurch.org forward slash dinner party. Um, and if you, you just can't make one over the next few weeks, find a friend, grab someone, take them to coffee, and, and tell them your but what about. Talk to them. Because I think it's something you need to process. Uh, in person. And then next week is week seven. We're almost done. (laughs) Next week is by far the most disturbing sermon in this series. And in fact, it's so disturbing at the end, I'm going to ask you to reflect on what was the most disturbing part. So you do not want to miss next week. Um, And I'm going to wrap it up there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of grace. We thank you that there's nothing that we can do to earn your love. There's nothing we can do to earn your grace, but it is all gift. And God, I pray that you would help those of us here who have struggled our whole lives with believing that that the Christian faith operates in the system that if we will, you will. But help us to understand not just in our mind, but at the deepest core of who we are, that there is nothing that we can do to earn your love or your grace. All we can do is accept the gift that has been given to us. And then by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you enable us, enable and empower us to live a new and a better way. Help us to be able to live in response to the forgiveness that we've been offered. Help us be able to live in response to the gift that we've been given. Because we have first been loved, may we be people who love others.